Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth podcast, where we talk about finance, major events affecting the economy, and how they change our day-to-day life. Send us any questions you may have, and please enjoy this week's episode. So, Louis, you know, Bob and I, we started this from about 15 years ago, and we have a pretty healthy international component to our portfolio, but Bob's just ready to give up on those emerging markets. He says, that's it. I just want to buy the Magnificent Seven. That's all that's going to work in the future. But I feel like you might have a different opinion on that. It's, it's definitely all that's worked in the recent past. <laughs> uh, now, whether indeed past performance is indicative of future returns is uh, uh, is, is the question at hand. Um, so first, look, I'd point out that um, for most of my career, emerging markets was really a byword for China. Uh, it was a byword for China in, in one of two ways. First, China was you know, like 40% of the emerging market index, number one. Uh, and number two, the, the broader emerging market cycle was highly dependent on China. China did well, and the other emerging markets just sold stuff to China, whether you were Brazil, whether you were Indonesia, basically you were selling your stuff to China. So when China did well, emerging markets did well and vice versa, um, at least for the past 15 years or so. Um, I think what's quite unique in this cycle uh, is that uh, if you think of the past 18 months, we've had China do very poorly, uh, much worse than anybody, including very much myself, uh, anticipated. Um, and at the same time, we've had a massive Fed tightening cycle. Um, now, that combination, you would have thought, you know, if you knew for sure 18 months ago that this would have happened, you would have thought, oh, my, oh emerging markets are going to get crushed. You know, every Fed tightening cycle in my career, you've had a major emerging market blow up plus Argentina, Argentina plus somebody else. Um, and always Argentina. Always Argentina. As a, as a good buddy of mine likes to say, uh, you get an e- economic crisis every 10 years in Argentina and they last for about a decade. Uh, <laughs> and um, the, um, But what's been amazing in this cycle is you've had the Fed tightening cycle. You've had China do very badly. Everybody is running around saying abandon uh, abandon ship, abandon ship. But if you look since the bottom of 2020, things like the Indian stock markets and the Mexican stock markets have actually done much better than the U.S. stock markets. Brazil, Indonesia, uh, even Turkey, Turkey, the basket case of all basket cases outside of Argentina, um, has done just as well as uh, U.S. equities. Uh, and having just picked on Argentina, we we have to highlight that if you take the Argentine ETF trading in the U.S., the ARJT, uh, it's actually outperformed the S&P 500 since the bottom in 2020. Um, so wow. the I think the perception out there indeed on, on emerging markets is, is that it's terrible. Meanwhile, you look at the performance, emerging market bonds have absolutely crushed U.S. treasuries, which again, highly unusual in a Fed tightening cycle. Um, and all the emerging market equity markets of the big countries are doing as well, if not better, than the U.S. Um, so I personally love this. I love this. You've got an undervalued asset class because most of these equity markets are cheap, with very decent momentum, and the public perception is terrible. Yeah, it's like oh, I don't want this anymore. Uh, and the reason people don't want it is they bought the EEM, which again is forty percent China, which and China has a bunch of issues, which if you want to go into, we can in, go into. So basically, babies are being thrown out with bathwaters here. Um, and I'm, I'm like super happy to catch these babies as they're being thrown out. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Louis. I've been, you know, watching India is doing really well, Brazil, 
um, Turkey, Mexico, Mexico is Mexico, amazing. I think that's a lot of that has to do with the perception of the onshoring and nearshoring that's going on, you know, with manufacturing. Um, but the Chinese market really isn't moving that well. It seems to be going down. Um, so how does that jive with your picture? I think onshoring is, is part of the story. It's, it's definitely not the only story. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's of course different, um, catalysts here and there. Um, take Mexico as an example, something that's little talked about, but remittances from the U S into Mexico have tripled over the past five years. Uh, why? Because all of a sudden in the U S, um, people at the low end of the labor spectrum, you know, the gardeners, the babysitters, et cetera, are getting paid twice as much as they were five years ago. Uh, I'm sure it's something that, you know, you've all experienced, right? It's, uh, all the low end workers in the U S now cost a lot more money. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, prejudiced or anything, but a lot of these low-end jobs in the U.S. are done by Hispanic workers who then send a lot of money home. Um, so, you know, that's, yeah. that's been a huge driver for low-end consumption in Mexico. Um, so, you, you, you know, each market has different drivers, but there is one common driver to, to all the emerging markets. And that is that in the past few years, you've seen two super important uh, changes. The first important change is a direct consequence of the Russia-Ukraine war. You know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we in the Western world told Russia, okay, fine, then you can't sell, uh, you can't use the US dollar, the Euro or the Swiss franc anymore. And we thought that as a result, the Russian economy would implode. Instead, Russia said, you know what, fine, I'll sell my commodities in Thai baht, in Brazilian reais, in, uh, in renminbi and in Indian rupees. Now, if you're a country like India, you basically have unlimited demand for infrastructure spending. You know, you need to build roads, airports, railways, power plants, you name it, they need it. Labor is not a constraint. They have as as many workers as they want. The constraint for an India has always been getting access to dollars so that they could then turn around and buy the oil, the iron ore, the copper, et cetera, that they would need. So if now Russia comes knocking on India's door and says, hey, I'll do you a five-year deal on oil at a 30% discount and you can pay me in rupees, India says, yes, please, every day of the week sure. and, and twice on Sunday. Because sure. um, now, all of a sudden, you've now removed India's only constraint to growth, which was access to dollars so they could buy commodities. Now, India gets as much commodities as they want. And so Modi can come out and say, I'm going to spend $150 billion US a year equivalent in, um, in infrastructure every year for the next five years, which, to put things in perspective, was roughly what China was doing from 2003 to 2008 when the Chinese economy really took off. This is what's happening in India. In the past year, India's opened 17 new airports and they're building another 70 right now. So think about you know, the demand for cement, the demand for steel, but, and, and from there, the demand for airplanes, for radars, for, you know, this, this thing goes exponential. Um, so that's your first massive change. The ability that all these countries now have of buying commodities in their own currency rather than dollars completely changes the equation for, for all these markets. And then there's, there's a second massive important factor. The second massive important factor is that actually, let me ask you guys a question. Um, five years ago, pre-COVID, China's trade surplus was 30 billion a month. Right. Um, since then, you know, like you said, there's been offshoring. We've tried to cut China out of the supply chains. We've, we've done everything we could to, to freeze China out. Um, so again, five years ago, China's trade surplus was 30 billion. What do you think it is today? 75. 
Yeah, because you just read my piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the link is here for our listeners. No, 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 Chris had that number at his fingertip. The uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it is it is seventy five billion. So China's trade surplus has basically gone two and a half x in in the past five years, in spite of everything we've done to, to yeah. box China in. Now, why then why is China's stock market done so poorly? If their trade surplus is increasing, they've gone up market and what they're selling. Um, I mean, what's the reason for the horrendous performance in the Chinese stock market? Because oh, they're going through a massive real estate bust. Um, I mean, they, you know, five years ago, the Chinese government just said, look, we're in a massive real estate bubble. This can't go on. Um, and in a sense, I think, you know, the events we had in Hong Kong, I say we because, you know, I've spent the past 25 years in Hong Kong and my bit and GAFGAL is based there. Um, the, the riots we started having in Hong Kong in 2014 and then again in 2019 were a wake up call for the Chinese government. You know, the, the, at the core of these riots was the reality that young people in, China, in Hong Kong couldn't afford real estate. Um, and the Chinese government thought, OK, you know, there's a huge real estate problem in, in, in Hong Kong, but it's a microcosm of what we could have here. We need to make real estate more affordable. Um, and so every effort was made to basically bring real estate prices down. Um, and given that, you know, most of the middle class had massively geared up to, to buy real estate in China or anywhere else like, for that matter, but um, that effort to, to crush real estate um, has led to obviously the bankruptcy of pretty much every property developer and, you know, just a crushing of animal spirits uh, all around. Now in my career, you know, I've seen a lot of countries go through um, uh, big real estate busts. Uh, you, you had Japan in 1991. You had Sweden in 92. Uh, I mean, you guys had your own in 2008, oh, right? And, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you guys had your, your, we had a big one in Europe in 20, uh, 2011. Um, each time you get a big real estate bust, usually your banks go bust and you end up with a big rise in unemployment and a big economic crisis. China's had the real estate bust but they haven't had the economic crisis. Uh, instead, the, the, really the variable of adjustment has, has been, uh, yeah, the, the stock market. And you have a leadership in China that really doesn't really care what the stock market does. Because unlike in the US where I think two thirds of American own stocks, in China, it's a tiny minority of people who own stocks uh, and it's mostly rich people. Um, so if stocks go down, who cares? Not only that, but most corporates don't fund themselves on the stock market. You know, most corporates fund themselves with bank loans. So, you know, the stock market settles where it settles. I don't think they really care. Um, now, but going back to, so one of the reasons I think the Chinese economy did not implode, even though it's going through a big real estate bust, is very much because exports have been so good. Um, right. Which, when you think of it, is somewhat counterintuitive, right? You would have thought, given all the barriers we put on and the, the offshoring, et cetera. Um, now, the reason Chinese trade surplus has been so good is not that all of us decided to buy three times as many pairs of sneakers or three times as many plastic toys for our kids. The reason the Chinese trade surplus has gone 3x is that China's massively shifted its export mix and its export destinations. Um, China, from nowhere, five years ago is now the biggest car exporter in the world, the biggest earth moving exporter, um, railroads, power plants, turbines, you name it, China's now in that market. China right now is negotiating with Saudi Arabia to sell nuclear power plants to Saudi Arabia. I, I never thought I'd live to see the day where China's an energy exporter to Saudi Arabia. 
but 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 there you go and as a frenchman myself i look at this and i'm like oh, this is french business like building nuclear plants that's what we do um right this is a real bummer if china's coming in and taking that that market from us i mean the uh, abu dhabi just so the uae opened a big nuclear plants we built that so you know i would have thought we'll get the saudi contracts as well but it looks like we won't um so i highlight all this because what China is doing, as it moves up the value chain in terms of its exports and it changes its export destinations, um, is that actually it changes also the currency in which the trade gets done. So when China goes to Indonesia and tells a coal miner there, or it goes to Chile and tells a copper miner, hey, instead of buying a Caterpillar, buy a long-haul machinery, it's two-thirds of the price, um, and we can do the deal in local currency. It again removes a constraint of growth to all these countries because now if I'm Chile, if I'm India, if I'm Indonesia, I can not only buy the commodities I need from, for my growth in local currency, but I can buy the machine tools, the machinery, the infrastructure, the power plants, you name it. I can buy that from China also in my local currency uh, or in renminbi with a loan from a Chinese bank. So. I've just removed basically the constraints to growth in all these markets. And I think that's why, even though we've had a Fed tightening, emerging markets have continued to chug along. They're simply, right. they're simply no longer as dependent on the U.S. dollar as they used to be, which is great news for emerging markets. What, 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 what's your outlook of the U.S. dollar? I know it's been weakening lately. Um, based, I mean, do you think there's a chance that like this, they could form a new brick currency to replace the uh, reserve currency, the dollar's reserve currency? I think that... I don't. I don't want to be rude, but I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The uh, so I. I, I, I better. <laughs> no, no. I, I. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think indeed most people look at the U.S. dollar and think, but hold on, let's be serious. You know, nobody's going to change the U.S. dollar for renminbi or for um, Indian rupees or for Indonesian rupiah or whatever. Uh, let's stick with the Chilean copper miner. Right. The way the Chilean copper miner works today is that he has a lot of, let's say, Yanto Fagasta, you have a lot of working capital in dollars because you know you need over the cycle to buy parts from Caterpillar. You need, you need to buy machinery from Caterpillar. And you also know that there'll come a time in the cycle where JP Morgan and Citibank will decide, for whatever reason, we're not making loans to Chile. You know, from past experience, you know that's going to happen. So you need to keep a lot of working capital in dollars, right? You need to do it. And your central bank also needs to keep a lot of reserves in dollars for that very same reason. The, the central bank knows there'll come some point in the cycle where the capital markets freeze for emerging markets. And so you, you better have a safety cushion. Um, now, in comes China, who says, hey, I'll sell you long machinery for two thirds of the cost, like I mentioned. Um, and I'll give you a swap line on renminbi so you can always pay for this, but you can actually, because Chile and China get together, you can actually pay me in Chilean peso. I'm fine owning Chilean peso assets. So now if I'm into Fagasta, I look at my working capital in dollars and I think, hold on, I don't need all this working capital in dollars. I can use that money, either give it back to shareholders, buy back shares, open a new mine. And so the US dollar ends up replaced with nothing. It's not like I'm, I'm going to take that U.S. dollars and put it in renminbi or in rupees or in a hypothetical BRICS currency. It's just I don't need as many dollars as I used to in my working capital or in my central bank. Take India. 
India's got $700 billion in U.S. treasuries that it's painstakingly accumulated over 30 years to cushion basically against a oil price shock. That's, that's really India's big concern is the oil price goes through the roof. I can't get access to dollars to pay for my oil. Right. And now in comes Russia and says, hey, I'll do you a five-year deal at a discount in rupees. Then you look at that $700 billion and you think, well, I don't need that anymore. I don't know what the right number is, but it's no longer $700 billion. Maybe it's $400 billion. Maybe it's $300 billion. So again, what's important is to realize the dollar gets replaced with nothing. You just don't need as many dollars outside of the U.S. as you used to in the past. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, you know, I never really, never really thought about it that way. And I guess that's you're, it, that, that's actually been happening since, what, since 2020, 2019? No, I think it's really the real catalyst for this, to be honest, is, has really been the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, okay. It's, uh, I think that's been the real catalyst for it on two fronts. First, of course, before, before the Russia-Ukraine war, all commodities were always priced in dollars and nothing else. Um, mm -hmm. So the Russia-Ukraine war changes the pricing of commodity markets. So that's your first change. The second change, of course, is with the Russia-Ukraine war, we nationalized all the Russian assets, right? Yeah. We rationalized the Russian assets of the central bank, of the Russian treasury, but even of Russian oligarchs. Um, and remember, we did this over the course of a weekend without any court orders, without any uh, debates in Congress or debates in parliament. Basically, prime ministers and presidents got together and said, you know what, let's just take all the Russian stuff. Um, now, this was an electroshock for people in emerging markets uh, because I think... If we look at the Western world, the biggest comparative advantage we have in the US and France and Britain, et cetera, is the rule of law. It's property rights, right? It's, yep. it's the belief that you can be black, brown, white, yellow, Muslim, Jewish, Christian. It doesn't matter. You go in front of a court of law in New York City and Paris and London, you have the same fair shake as the next guy. And then we added a little asterisk to this. The little asterisk we added was, except if you're Russian. If you're Russian, we can just take all your stuff. No questions asked, no court yeah. orders, no, no. So now if you're Chinese, and by the way, we said, except if you're Russian. And as we did this, we basically looked at China and said, and you're next. You know, we're also coming for you because uh, we don't like you either. Uh, we also think you're a bad actor. So you're next. So if you're Chinese, imagine you're a rich Chinese guy uh, or a rich Arab uh, or a rich Indonesian. You think, what do you mean, except if you're Russian? I, you know. I was buying this house in Vancouver or this house in New York on the premise that if things go bad in my own country, because I can't trust the government in my own country, at least I have a fallback here. But yeah. actually, it turns out that I can trust your government even less than I can trust my own. Um, and so, you know, yeah. and so, so I think the real, the real change was February 2022. That was the change in the global financial architecture, and we're slowly working our way through it. So, Louis, you know, we're, we're U.S.-based, right? So every investor I've ever met, I've been investing people's money for 50 years. We're always, you know. And you still uh, have all your hair? I still have all my hair. Can you believe it? An abundance of hair. That's uh, very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, uh, you know, I give gray hair. I don't get gray hair. That's what I say, right? <laughs> but everybody has a, a domestic focus, right? You feel, of course. Amazing. If you're the wealthiest person in France, you don't want all your money in the U.S. market because it's risky, right? So, you know, having a global perspective um, where valuations are today, how would you allocate your, your equity dollars around the world? Well, I, I spend a lot. I love reading history. I love reading uh, 
sh shifts, etc. But uh, if you look at the 1970s, the, the driving force of market, you start off with the nifty 50s, and then it was US oil stocks. And you got to, to the late 70s, and, and six of the top 10 companies in the world by market cap were US oil companies. You get to the 1980s, and it was you know the time where if you didn't learn Japanese, you'd never have another job. Uh, and by by 1989, 45% of the world MSCI was Japan. Um, eight of the top 10 companies in the world were Japanese. 1990s was all about US internet. 2000s was all about the emergence of China. And of course, the past 10 years has been about software eats the world. You mentioned the Magnificent Seven. Um, and that, that was the theme. Now, if you look through these themes, it looks like every 10 years, you go US, non-US, US, non-US, US, non-US. You also go value, growth, value, growth, value, growth. Um, and it, it seems to, to be these sort of 10-year rotations. And, you know, right on cue, right now, people are going around saying international diversification is for the birds. Uh, you know, value investing is for the birds. And, you know... You just have these one decision stocks. Uh, you just buy them and hold on to them. And this is what you see every cycle. So right now, as you know, as as expected, everybody tells you international diversification is for the birds. Um, meanwhile, you're already seeing a number of large markets starting to outperform the U.S. Um, you know, I mentioned Mexico, I mentioned India, Brazil, um, but even some of the developed market ones, like Japan is going through a bull market. Nobody cares. Nobody's talking about it, but, uh, but Japan's going through a bull market. So if you look back at 2023, I think you had a few very interesting bull markets. Of course, you had the bull market in the U.S., uh, but the bull market in the U.S., we know, was a very concentrated bull market. It was a bull market that was around, you know, like you mentioned, the MAX-7, the rest of the market really didn't do that great. And one, one part that I find alarming is that in the U.S., the, the financials did very badly. Um, now, again, I don't want to be offensive, but if we start off with the premise that uh, banks, insurance companies, financials in general are basically parasites on, our, on, our, on, the, economic, <laughs> on the economic beast, you know, they, they feed off the growth, the underlying growth of the economy. If you have a healthy beast, you would expect financials to do well. Uh, and uh, so at GAFCAL, we spent a lot of time looking at what banks are up to. Are, are bank balance sheets expanding? Are they making loans? Uh, are bank shares expanding? In a, in, a, in a bull market, you would expect banks to do well. It doesn't mean they outperform, but you would expect them to participate. I hate a bull market where I see banks go down 20%, um, which, which is basically where, where the U.S. is. It's, this is not a sign of, okay, we're in rude health. This is going to continue. Um, I also don't like a bull market in which you're also losing money on bonds. Uh, for me, a proper bull market is what we call a triple merit scenario, a period of falling real interest rates, rising exchange rates. And it is that combination that allows for a re-rating of real estate, a re-rating of equities, and everything points in the same direction. The reality in the U.S. today is you've got your magnificent seven pointing in one direction and everything else pointing in the other. Uh, meanwhile, you go to Japan, super healthy banks, uh, broad market, um, uh, rising real estate. It's like, it's all pointing in the same direction. So it's like, okay, this is, this is, this takes all the boxes of a normal bull market. I'm comfortable playing there. Same story in India, same story in Mexico, same story in Brazil. So when you look at, you know, the bull markets of 2023, where did you have bull markets? Latin American debt and Latin American uh, equities. Perfect. 
let's play that one. Momentum, let's play with it. I get it. I think the geostrategic risk there is minimal. Let's do it. Japan, same story. Uh, you know, no geostrategical risk minimum there, etc. Okay, play that. India, boom, same story. Um, and and the U.S. is a standalone market where yes, you have your bull market in Max Seven, but it comes with a lot of red flags. So it's a little bit like hmm. Uh, now, out of all of these markets, it also happens to be the one where the valuations are the most stretched, that is by far the most overowned, uh, and uh, and where there's by far the highest retail participation. So it's like red flags, you know, there's more red flags than on Bernie Sanders' uh, yard on May Day. Uh, so it's, I, I just don't feel that comfortable with it. Yeah, I, I you know, I agree with that. I mean, it, it looks like a replay of 2000, you know, where it's, you get this democratization of the market where everybody's an expert and you can have a one-stop, you know, index or one-stop stock, or in this case, seven. Um, we, we, we've totally, you know, in agreeing, we agree with it totally in that, in that scenario and that viewpoint. By the way, on this, on this, have you ever seen the movie, The Magnificent Seven? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> As a you, matter of you, fact. You know that four of them die at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm going to use I'm that. I'm stealing <laughs> that. <laughs> stealing that. That's really yeah. good. So, yeah. Louis, what kind of shape are the banks in, in, in like China? How, how are banks like banks in China doing, you know, with this real estate bubble bursting? So I think, the, look, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that banks in China are not your typical capitalistic enterprise. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're really arms of the government, uh, for better or for worse. So for, for worse is your shareholder returns are low on the list of, gov of, of, of CEO priorities, if they even make the list. Yeah. Uh, the, for better, um, they don't have to recognize bad loans. You know, mm -hmm. the big, the big difference in China is, um, you know, if you make a bad loan, et cetera, you sweep it under the rug and you help, you hope to grow yourself out, uh, over time. Uh, bank loans are not really driven as much by, by uh you know again economic returns as much as they are by policy the government tells the banks okay you guys lend or you guys don't lend so we've gone from so all this to say if you look at the bank share prices they're basically flatlined for the past two years they've actually outperformed u.s banks amidst the big real estate bust in china uh, in mm -hmm. the uh they've, they've done better than than u.s banks um and they offer high yield um so um I think basically Chinese banks is kind of dead money. Um, I, I don't think they're going to collapse, but they, you know, again, they're an arm of the government. Um, right. So now what is happening in China is bank loans are picking up uh, again under government uh, impetus. Um, so, you know, you could say, okay, well that, that, that's a positive. Um, but you also know that their balance sheet is loaded up with, with bad debt, but that's why they all trade below book value. Um, and, and that bad debt will just have to be worked out, uh, over the coming years. So, Louis, you know, oil's been dropping, um, and, you know, we had that big spike, you know, when the war started in Ukraine, uh, you know, when the Russians invaded. So is that, you know, with the, with the global economy in your perspective seems to be doing really well. I mean, the U S GDP was over 5% last quarter. Europe seems to be recovering nicely. Um, and you think China has held up really well. Why? What's going on with oil, in your opinion? I think you know myself, most people, etc. I've been on, came into the year thinking the supply of oil was tight, um, and right. I think the big the big surprise this year 
has been that uh, if you go back to, to July 1st, uh, the U.S. was producing 12.2 million barrels per day, uh, according to, uh, to EIA figures. Um, you fast forward 11 weeks to early October, and by then the U.S. was producing 13.2 million barrels per day. Yeah, the so the US, the U.S. added, on official numbers, the U.S. added a million barrels per day, uh, and it managed to do so with no increase in capital spending uh, on the old patch and no increase in employment. Just more efficiency. Yeah, they don't have less rigs. Yeah. And, and, and fewer rigs. It's like, oh my God, like the productivity gains here are just outstanding. So I think if you're an oil investor, now you would think, okay, great news for oil stocks, right? They get to produce more with less. Uh, you wouldn't know that though, looking at the oil stocks. Uh, <laughs> um, but so right now, the, you know, the story, if you look at the official numbers, you're like, oh my God, they're producing so much. This is amazing. Um, then from there, you have to think, okay, if, you, if you've had this productivity gain in U.S. oil production, how long till you have this productivity gain in Canada, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Saudi Arabia, in Nigeria? Um, you know, whatever methods are being used in the U.S., you know. Now, how can we explain this sudden surge in productivity uh, in the U.S.? Uh, I think there's, there's three possible explanations. The first is you'll remember that this summer you had um, – a bunch of private equity activity. Uh, 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 Exxon took over Pioneer. Yeah. Chevron took over Hess. Um, so I think if you're owning a small oil producer, you're probably thinking, okay, time to sweat sweat the hell out of my assets. <laughs> uh, you know, cr crank it up here and sell myself to to whoever's got the pocketbook open, right? So so that's one one possibility. Uh, that every producer out there is in a, and then it raises the question, you know, how long can you sweat the asset for? You know, sure, you can, you know, maybe get a little short-term boost, but without employment, without CapEx, how long can that last? Option one. Um, option two, you could say, no, 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 you know, it's the application of artificial intelligence, application of software, um, that we can now get so much more with, with less. Um, and again, if that's the case, we can apply that to the rest of the world. And that's quite bearish oil price. Uh, option three, you could say actually these these EIA numbers are bullshit. Uh, <laughs> excuse my French, um, but these EIA numbers are basically made up, and and that, that's been part of the feud between OPEC and, and EIA, where OPEC is basically saying, look, you you guys are are making making this up. Um, and um, my own my own perception is this probably a little bit of the three. Uh, there's probably a little bit of the three. I think the next three months are key. We're going to have to see, you know, whether um, that 13.2 million barrels per day in the U.S. is a spike, or whether it's a um, uh, it continues. You know, whether it's it's basically it's a new plateau or on the way to even higher. Um, I think if you see a rollover in that 13.2, oil prices will come back up really quickly. Right. It just depends how much they can keep pushing it. Um, do you, the, the slowdown in China, is that part of the story as well? Because that's what you're hearing in the U.S. It's that China's still in a slowdown. Demand there is weak. Or is it less of that and more productivity gains in your opinion? I think what actually, I think the China story is a bit different. Uh, the, what's been fascinating to me in uh, in China is actually China for the past, really since the start of COVID, 
has been importing more than it needs. Uh, China's been building, just as mm. the U.S. has emptied mm. out its strategic petroleum reserves, China's been building one of their own. Um, and, you know, China's constantly imported probably, you know, probably about a million barrels per day more than it needs. Maybe not a million, maybe 700,000, something like that, more, more than it consumes. So it's, it's more pro productivity gains right now than it is China slowing down per se. I think so. I, th I think China's yeah. been, and China is still stocking up. Um, and by the way, the more the prices fall, the more China buys. But it does mean structurally, when you think of it, that it also caps the oil price on the upside, right? Because as ch basically China is, is in essence saying, look, below 80, we'll buy, we'll buy whatever you want to send us. And above 100, we stop buying. And if by, by the fact of stopping buying, then it's, it's hard for the oil price to go above 100. Um, now, that's why I, I tended to think that the oil price would stay between 80 to 100, because below 80, China's a buyer in size, and below above 100, it's no longer a buyer. Uh, and given that China is still the biggest marginal buyer in the world, um, you would think it, it, could, it could basically dictate the price. Um, so that's why I'm surprised it's below 80. Um, so you could say perhaps one explanation is that China's ability to keep on storing oil has now reached, you know, like maybe, you know, they, they can't store it anymore, uh, basically. If that's the case, though, you would think that probably the, the VLCC rates would be shooting up that because China yeah. could, you know, store it on VLCCs, but you're not really seeing that. So I don't know. Well, you know, it, it, one thing markets always do is surprise. I mean, <laughs> we had that. Uh, that one print was thirty negative thirty dollars a barrel. <laughs> yep, not that long ago. Um, and China you know, was China was in the market then buying all it could. Yeah, and we weren't, um, and we weren't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But Trump's a smart businessman. All right, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were distracted by then. I guess. Yeah. yeah. China, um, China had a little more runway. They yeah. knew what was coming. <laughs> Well, I guess that's that's a bigger question too. Is just, I mean, would you be a buyer of Chinese equities here? I mean, do you wait? Is the bottom not completely out yet, or is it time to start nibbling uh, on the Chinese market? Given the fact that that market just seems to be in a perpetual downturn from a from a U.S. perspective and U.S. dollars. So I think there's many ways. Look, historically, there's, there have always been many ways to to play Chinese growth. Uh, Chinese equities have not always been the best way to play Chinese growth. Uh, you know, people mm -hmm. who played the big China boom through the commodity markets or by buying LVMH and LMS um, uh, often did better than, than buying Chinese equities. Now today, I think a lot of, a lot of commodity plays have been beaten up. Um, you know, uh, copper is an obvious example. Nickel has been just taken to, to, uh, to the back and shot. Uh, so is lithium. I mean, lithium's down 70% this year. Um, the, and we just mentioned energy, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, good quality energy companies are trading on single digit price to cash flows. Um, if China does re so buying a lot of these names today, uh, you're playing both a potential China rebound, but also this sort of structural bullish outlook on emerging markets that we discussed. If either one of these things come true, you should make money on these names. Uh, well, of course the Chinese equity names are probably more a play on just China doing rebounding. If, if that right. makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, so it's a more it's a more narrow play. Um, now, having said that, I think within the Chinese equity market, you have of course different pockets. Um, I think everything linked to real estate and to financials in in China still has big hurdles. 
Um, and you know, you're, you're still in a pretty strong downward momentum. Everything linked to China's exports industry, you know, that's corrected a lot. Um, I actually think that that's interesting. You know, names like BYD, which is, I think is going to be the biggest automaker in the world. You know, BYD is now selling electric cars to places like Australia for 11,000 US dollars a car. Yeah. Uh, it's going to, it's going to be very hard to, to compete with that. Uh, partly because China, it, yeah. China controls the entire battery supply chain from, from the nickel yeah. upwards. Um, so I think when you said that Elon Musk said the other day that uh, their only real competition, Tesla, they're not looking at other U.S. car makers. It's China. That's their yeah, biggest yeah. competition. He's not concerned about no, other I, uh, U.S. manufacturers at all. If I were in his shoes, I'd, that's, yeah, that's yeah. how I'd feel as well. I mean, you look at you look at some of these Chinese autos and here this 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 was a real shock to me, I, I have to say, because, you know, I, I usually go to China every uh, every, you know, either, I'm in Hong Kong, but I go into China at least every three months or so. But of course, during COVID, I didn't. That was the first time in my adult life that basically I was gone from China for three years because you just you just couldn't go back in. Um, and when you came back in, all of a sudden, there was such a jump in the quality of autos. Uh, you saw hundreds of brands that I'd never heard of before. Um, you'd walk through a Chinese shopping mall and you'd see cars that you're like, oh, this car looks great. I wonder what it is. I want it for myself and be a brand you didn't know. Uh, so yeah, it's the, 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 the car land, the auto landscape has changed so dramatically in five years. It's mind blowing. And I think people in America don't realize it because they don't see Chinese cars on their streets. Uh, Never. But if you go, exactly if, right. if you go to, to Europe now, actually, and a lot of Americans do go to Europe and you rent a car, there's like now a 30% chance you're going to be given a Chinese car. Chris refuses to do that. He's a real patriot, so he would never. <laughs> never he does, it doesn't even go to Europe. What are you talking about? I got a brand new uh, Great Wall Motors uh, vehicle out in my garage. <laughs> the, uh, the Chevy Bolt's the only uh, electric vehicle around. But, yeah. um, but, uh, but so if you're going finishing on the, on, the, on the China story, then the other big play, which is the way Americans have typically played it, is, of course, all your internet names your Alibabas, your Baidus, uh, that's typically the way Americans play it. And those, those, those names have been, you know, basically taken back and shot. You know, you're, you're basically yeah. buying Alibaba now at seven times cash flow. Um, <laughs> and, um, and on this, uh, I think the, the perception is that these names are Chinese names, but increasingly they're pan-emerging market names. You know, Alibaba's got a really big business in Latin America. It's got a really big business in, in, uh, across Southeast Asia. Uh, so I think here for the patient investor, uh, the look, I, you don't break a leg jumping out of the, f the first floor window. Um, when you're buying good quality growth companies that are growing at 15, 20% a year at seven times cash flow, I, I think yeah. things usually turn out okay for you. Okay. So outside of China, what do you perceive as the best emerging market opportunity right now with the long-term view and you know, not the yield to noon that Chris is looking for. I think it's hard to knock Mexico today, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mexico's got, it takes every single box. Uh, it's not expensive. Real rates are falling. Um, it's uh, it, geostrategically, it's very, very well placed. It's it, you know, like it's benefiting from the offshoring trend. It's got good demographics. Uh, it's currency has come up, but it's still like, you got positive momentum on the currency, positive momentum on bonds, positive momentum on equities. Um, 
it's you know the, why fight the trend it's uh it's to me that that seems like the, the most obvious slam dunk never really thought about that all the money flowing back you know from from the u.s yeah and uh with our inflation rate um all those costs have gone up and actually the you know the wage increases for you know the the, the lower middle class of this country has been been dramatic so it's uh it's, it's that's I love these conversations that you look at things very differently, you know, than a lot of people look at looking at the you same. Know, you know what you can buy, and it's a great looking chart. Is Walmart Mexico? It's like it's a forty five degree angle. Angle. It looks, to be honest, it looks it looks like the Bernie Madoff performance. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just it's just like it looks like a, a nice a nice ski slope. Um, you know, Walmart Mexico is. And, you know, for especially for American investors who are like, oh, I don't trust emerging market managements. I don't, you know, they're, they're going to lie to me. They're going to, it's like, no, 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 this is U.S. management of yeah. a business that's easy to understand. Uh, do you think the low-end consumer in Mexico makes more money? And the answer is yes. Uh, and this is how you play it. Louis, one of the things you had mentioned in uh, that great article you wrote is, it, you know, kind of the gist of it is like, you know, whatever barriers are put up. You know, it's like the world finds a way to to be productive. And one of the things you talked about is linking, you know, making these links between countries, um, you know, investing infrastructure and creating those links. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for thanks for your kind words on, on the article. Um, look, and, you know, this this article is really, to be honest, uh, a reflection of my own personal experiences. So, you know, I was born in France um, and uh, in the 70, early 70s and um and the big story as I was growing up was the integration of the European continent and the European Union, taking down the trade barriers, free movement of goods, free movement of people. And that went into hyperdrive once the Berlin Wall fell. And that was what drove really, you know, 10 years of bull market in Europe. Um, I moved to the U.S. for college in the early 90s. And then the big story was NAFTA. And then again, you know, big, big integration, big move, et cetera. And uh, I moved to Hong Kong in 98, 97. And as China was getting ready to join the WTO, the big story became Chin America. Um, now today, you know, sort of 20 years later, uh, the story is uh, one, you know, the story we're told in the Western world is deglobalization and we're going to therefore have higher inflation and uh, lower productivity, et cetera. But I think that's taking a very Western centric view because actually global trade is still expanding, uh, but it's expanding because emerging market to emerging market trade is booming. Um, and for all the reasons I just highlighted, more trade from Russia to India, more trade from Russia to Brazil, more trade from Russia to Indonesia, but also more trade from China, selling machine tools, cars, all these things. Um, but all this trade that is occurring requires infrastructure. Uh, it requires ports, airports, railways, uh, canals, power plants, and needs all of that. And and you're, you are seeing it across the emerging markets. Hardly a day goes by uh, without you know, some new canal, some new port, some new free trade deal being announced really across what I would call the Eurasian continent. Um, or in our research, we've talked a lot about an axis that basically you draw a line that goes from Istanbul to Jakarta. Um, and you go 500 miles on each side of this line. So you draw a big rectangle. Um, and within that rectangle, you have uh, 3.6 billion people who live there. Um, you have population growth of 1% and income growth of 5%, some of the highest income growth in the world. Um, and that 3.6 billion people 
in the next 10 years, we'll all be buying motorcycles, cars, refrigerators, uh, microwave ovens, uh, all this th stuff you take for granted. Uh, they're not all going to be able to buy them, but a lot of them are going to be able to buy them. Um, why? Because incomes are progressing. And as incomes progress, um, people tend to buy the same things. So, you know, in, in China, as people, you move from average income of 8,000 a year to 10,000 a year over a few, over the space of three years, China's consumption of cars moved from two and a half million cars per year to 18 million cars per year. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's when all prices, you know, went from 30 bucks to 120 bucks because the world wasn't ready for it. Um, well, remember China was 1.2 billion people. This is 3.6 billion people. Um, so my contention is people are dramatically underrepresented in commodities. Uh, you know, the, the copper, the, the iron ore, the, the, the energy that you're going to need for all this. Or alternatively, you have to think that the productivity gains we're going to see in places like energy extraction or in energy consumption are going to be enormous. Um, yeah. but, um, but I think if you're not focusing on this, you're actually missing the bigger picture. It's like, it's like people who weren't focusing on the, the, the surge in China-US trade and the, out, the outsourcing of everything to China in the early 2000s. If you missed that, that back then, you missed the story for the next decade. Um, and so I think today, you know, the, the Western world's focus on, oh, look at what we're doing in AI, look at what we're doing in computing, look at what we're doing in biotech. We're staring at our own belly buttons. Um, <laughs> and we're, 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 we're missing the bigger macro picture out there. I really believe that. Yeah. I think maybe you persuaded Bob that he needs to invest outside the Magnificent Seven, Louie. I think that's, <laughs> I think you just, you just closed the deal. One, one step at a time, Walmart, Mexico. That, that's an easy step. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 143, Pain Points of Wealth. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially, literally at any stage of your journey. But if you saved over a million dollars, and you want a more hands-on approach, Bob, Chris, and I, with our collective 75 years of experience, will run for you our total financial master plan, and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full, holistic review. We literally look at everything. There's not a firm out there that will do this work up front. We'll build you your own personalized financial portal, give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life, and hone in on every financial issue you need to address today. Whether it's an income plan for retirement, how do you take Social Security? How do you draw from your portfolio? How do you factor in inflation? We'll build you a dynamic income plan. We'll look at diversification. Market's been like a yo-yo the last two years. Has your portfolio been up and down? Or have you been sitting in cash? Paralysis by analysis, can't figure out what to do. We'll put together a full investment game plan tied to your goals, show you how to grow your wealth, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we'll look at fees and taxes. We'll do a deep dive of every investment you own on those annuities insurance products, brokerage products, structure products. We'll show you where all the hidden costs are, show you how to reduce that cost and optimize your portfolio for taxes. It's now what you make, it's what you take. You'll get our full tax playbook. If you saved over a million dollars for your financial independence, simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. It's a hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. All right, Bob, the total market cap of the Magnificent Seven is now three times the size of every single stock in the Russell 2000 index combined, making just seven stocks the equivalent of 6,000 small cap names. On average, 47 analysts follow the Magnificent Seven versus just five for 
a small cap name. 9% of smaller companies have no followers at all. Wow. Sounds like small caps are a buy. Well, here, this might be shocking news to everybody, but you know, artificial intelligence is going to benefit every one of those small cap companies. But, you know, why would you want to invest in those when you can overpay for stocks at 100 times earnings? This is definitely the anti-Magnificent 7 podcast if we've ever had one. <laughs> All right, Chris, there are roughly 16 million American households that are worth 1 million or more, but that number includes prim primary residents. So the number with a million investable assets is much smaller, something like 5% of the population. If you have a million dollars in investable assets, you are not certainly not middle class or upper class, you're rich. Well, you know, it just goes to show you, you can sell that million dollar house and go live in a tent to become super rich. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all relative though, that's for sure. Um, Bob, always for that outdoor plumbing, Chris. Chris has got a nice outhouse. <laughs> uh, all right, Bob. Only one in Center City. <laughs> Bob, since 1800, gold has returned just 0.32% a year after inflation versus 3.07% for the 10-year Treasury note and 6.83% for U.S. stocks. Interestingly, we are only 15% above the peak during the American Civil War in the 1860s when inflation was very high. So you can be a long-run inflationist but still be a bit underwhelmed by gold as an investment. 2100 at the end of December, uh, which is everyone's making a big deal about gold over $2,100, is still below the inflation adjusted high of $3,333 reached in early 1980. That's crazy. So you still lost money in gold in inflation adjusted terms since the early 80s. Well, you know what? I always say gold is something that looks really nice around the neck, around the, the wrist of the person you love. It's never been a good investment. You can't eat it. You can't carry it around. Doesn't pay a dividend. You got to store it. If you do happen to get lucky and make a profit, you got to pay 28% on capital gains because it's collectible. It's not a, not an asset. I don't know why anyone would invest in gold uh, beyond me. But, you know, these people that sell gold on TV are making a lot of money because those commercial are expensive, guys. Don't forget, somebody's got to pay for those commercials. And I think it's the gold investors, but certainly not in their return. You always say that uh, investments are always sold, never bought. This is true, Chris. Well, let's not make fun of Chris's commemorative uh, coin collection right behind him over there. <laughs> those are those are patriotic <laughs> coins, I'll have you know. Show a little patriotism. Thank God there's at least one good one good American loving citizen right. on this podcast. I think if you go to Morgan and Morgan, you can play you can pay them with Morgan silver dollars, kind of like the same area, right? The same uh, kind of it's right. process. <laughs> Another great episode. I hope you enjoyed episode 143, Pain Points of Wealth. If you like our podcast, maybe love our podcast, please give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Leave a comment there. Let people know how great our podcast is. If it's on Spotify, you can subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube right now, you can like this episode. You can subscribe to our channel. Click that notification bell to be updated every week of all our new content. Your support for our podcast gives us the ability to keep doing this podcast. As always, stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Ryan, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at bebullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Pain Capital Management.
Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. 